0: Side Chats, a podcast where communists sit down to shoot the shit about current events, history, political economy, and theory. This episode, we conclude our discussion of Frederick Engels' On the Housing Question. returning to finish the housing question to resolve it indeed once and for all Whenever you title something on the blank
1: question you know by the end of it that it's going to be solved
0: i mean it's honestly it's kind of weird you didn't call it the housing answer right 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 should we i don't know should we address the elephant in the room or maybe i should say the bear (laughs)
1: yeah
0: the the huge russian bear
1: on the corner of the room, making inroads. Yeah, I suppose we
0: should. All right, let's set a, let's set a ten minute timer on this. Okay, so let's pick a side. I'm pro Putin. Oh, hold on uh, a second. You want you want to take the other side? We'll Siri, ten minute right. timer. Yeah.
1: All right. All right. We're we're, we're good. Yeah, let's see. So um,
0: he's standing well, up to global homo.
1: This this is how uh, it's actually he's NATO's national fault. National
0: sovereignty against the uh, Against the globalists,
1: I know it looks like that imperialist Russians bombed a maternity hospital, but it's really about NATO encirclement.
0: Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. They, that was they. Were, it, it, it was they say it's a maternity hospital. It was really a Planned Parenthood. <laughs> so it's actually based
1: <laughs> trying to root out the Ukrainian Nazis and replace them with Russian ones.
0: Yeah, uh, I don't know. It's it's. What's so fascinating about to me is like this maybe is the most like high stakes political you know geo confrontation we've maybe seen no question in our lifetimes. But the conversation around it in the United States feels, especially on the left, feels very very deflated. I think I know why, but it's interesting to see.
1: Well, not only has it felt deflated, it feels like the definitive eclipse of the world that all the millennial socialists were living in, like. That you know, we we have a chance to influence the world. We can build power. This event makes America just look like there's you know nothing for it to say about it, which is just something that America's not used to in terms of its ego. Like you know,
0: well, in a sense, though, you know, there has been some like foreign policy realist pieces. I think arguing quite correctly that you know we, the blob kind of baited Russia into this conflict. I don't think anybody expected him to go this far with it, but in a lot of ways, you know, I've I've also seen arguments from like Chinese scholars that, you know, this could actually redound to America's benefit in a big bad way, and keep, you know, Russia and China in this Thucydides trap that they can't get out of.
1: I mean, I think there's little question about whether, at, at least now, you know, whether this benefits like NATO or not. Clearly, this makes NATO seem really important and obviously necessary and not just like a, a, holdover from a previous era. Um, it's kind of like Putin handed NATO the keys to the next 50 years. Um, which, yeah, I mean, look, I, I get the foreign policy realist stuff, but we hear a truncated version of that analysis that is sort of, I don't know. It's like a lie by a mission because the implication of that analysis is that either U.S. shouldn't have, you know, played around with NATO, or that the U.S. should have added NATO? That would also solve the problem in the foreign policy realist uh, <laughs> solution, right? Like, and I don't think any of these people are really willing to say that. So, they're only kind of doing a half; they're only giving you half of the implications of the analysis which means that they're pulling a punch. The most obvious conceivable reason that they're pulling that punch is that, you know, they want to produce something that apologizes for an imperialist invasion, (laughs) which is if you've ever been around imperialist invasions, which, you know, Jake, I think we've seen, uh, you know, a couple, uh, we've presided over them, you know, you and I, um, yeah, personally, Yeah, people love justifying that. And, uh, all thought can be like, can bow to this lightning rod of trying to make, make this happen. And I don't know if you want to be a foreign policy realist, you can say that the U S shouldn't have sent a signal that they were going to back NATO or back Ukraine. You know, NATO shouldn't, shouldn't have sent a signal that they were going to back Ukraine and then sort of not because that's the kiss of death is the indecision there. And if you, if you, If you agree with that, then you either agree with the U.S. shouldn't be in or I'm sorry, NATO shouldn't be in Ukraine or NATO should have added Ukraine.
0: We basically reached the point in the Biden administration where like the maximalist interpretation of like, you know, everything, you know, bad (laughs) that (laughs) we suspected about him (sighs) can't turn out to be the case and that there wouldn't. Yeah. Indeed, the the neoliberalism is not over and, uh, you know, we basically get nothing. And so, you know, there's really no place for any of that sort of like Bernie Sanders, you know, Democratic Party interventionism to go. And the left doesn't really have anywhere else to go besides the wilderness to the extent that it even exists. And so, you know, we can just sort of watch this as a slow motion or fat, depending on how it's going, slow or fast motion train wreck. And then, you know, debate how we all feel about it.
1: The wilderness would be, you know, sort of more ideal compared to where this usually ends up, which is, Mm -hmm. yeah. The metaverse the V it's VR that doesn't know it's, it's a VR simulation that doesn't know that it is, you know, like you could play half life, Alex, you can put on a VR headset and experience a false world in your senses and be more grounded because you can take off half life, Alex, you can take it off your head and, you know, walk, walk out into your living room. But the most effective simulation is the one that you can't remove from your head.
0: (laughs) Should we move on to the housing question?
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, people are—you've heard enough hot takes about Russia. You don't really turn to left media to learn about Russia, do you? Because if you know, there's one thing I feel like you you understated that's kind of important is that not only does the millennial left feel like its chances for impacting politics as a whole are like not not happening, but American politics as a whole being what it is, being as ineffectual as it is on the world stage, like puts everything into perspective in a way that like, I'm glad that more of my income doesn't rely on left media right now. Let me me put that way, like (laughs) I can afford to be sort of like uh, blackpilled about it and say and be able to just say, yeah, right now, you know, that the our our ability to make inroads in and the situation doesn't look great like right now and of course that could change um, but you know no use lying about it you know I, I've, I've personally been uh, learning some differential equations It's been taking up a lot of time learning learning a lot it's, don't think about the powerlessness all the time do other stuff
0: yeah it's it's like I said it's it's a very weird moment I don't and I haven't been following this situation up until now super closely anyway
1: yeah I can't say that I was either,
0: and nobody really knows like what's going on. I mean it's clear that this isn't like an unambiguous w for Putin at this point, but all this descends probably heard a lot of this descends into like debates about like what the how much territory was actually taken, what the troop movements mean you know, like I saw this guy like walking these people were farmers were driving this. that means that the army is losing you know it's you're you're just kind of reading the te- like there's a fog of war here. This is very similar to the situation in Syria, you know, about half a decade ago, but the discussion around it again feels uh, much more deflated than that. Even if the even if the implications of it are much bigger in terms of like the economy, you know, i mean, like the world economy, the whole polar alignment of the current international state system, like um, it's coming to head in a much bigger way. But the conversation around it uh, hasn't really been reduced, probably because we already had this argument. It hasn't reduced to recriminations around who's in a, who wants a red-brown alliance and who doesn't. Um, it's basically, you sort of have, I think, an increasingly small number of campus who are like... Um, although, there obviously, there is the big liberal thing where they're like, you know, I want to have sex with the president of Ukraine or whatever.
1: Uh, like, there's, al- there's always going to be those cringe libs. You can't let, I you think can't, that stuff
0: is more transparently silly than it was uh, to people than it was, uh, you know, just a few years ago.
1: Well, I, I've talked to some communists where that's their big issue is that there's cringe libs flying Ukrainian flags and and all right, it, admittedly, they're, they're shouting like Ukrainian neo Nazi like slogans without no without understanding the context. It is pretty fucking funny and it's cringe and it's like, but is this like a real political issue? Is there any like reality where American cringe libs? Are so well ten minutes. American cringe libs are so effective with their, you know, cheerleading that they push us into a nuclear war. Like, does that really sound like a like a real thing that's going to happen right now?
0: No, it's just it's an argument about who's cool, right? Like who's cool and who isn't. You know, the, are you are you portraying like the exact uh, right? Cor- are you they, portraying the exact correct? emotional response to the situation you know are you normal are you a normal person are you a normal person or are you a cringe lib you know are you are you uh cringe or are you based
1: all right i think i get it now
0: but i think in some ways one thing i do kind of welcome in like this weird kind of like post left and trad turn is like like hipsters leaving socialism like i mm, think that is mm-hmm. a good thing overall and i support it 100 percent
1: yeah yeah No, that's, that's definitely good. It's good when the wind is out of our sails. You, like, you have people, uh, well, let's, let's be honest though. Some of the scene vets, some of the, the real heads out here, they're, uh, they're psychos too. And, you know, having them having to compete with the big fish, you know what I mean? With the people that like, uh, you know, the big cultural mid carters that ride the waves. Like. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Those sharks are the best of the best. Like, if, if you can, if you can keep up with like, if you, if you could recreate your success in all different kinds of environments, those, those people are the, you know, Nash agents of all Nash agents.
0: Yeah. They're not the op- real operators.
1: Yeah. Our petty sociopaths can barely keep up. Um, so, you know, you want to look for the true left sociopath label when, you know, buying your books. You can't let just some grifter who is just a, a garden variety sociopath, like, Mop up all of the all of the deserved income. Yeah, well, for, they, they haven't put the work in. Yeah, for our team, for our, our our team sociopath drifters, like our loyalty is to them above all others.
0: I mean, you know, like I just I just respect somebody who you know puts the time in, keeps their head down, you know, and uh, yeah, as opposed to like Johnny Come Latelies who are just there for a good time, you know.
1: I'm just gonna say, like one of one, one of those people knows how to live and the other doesn't, right?
0: Like, yeah, I don't know. But what happened to, like, virtue? You know what I'm saying? What happened to, like, honor?
1: Markets. <laughs> <laughs> markets happened to virtue. And now That's what I'm saying. Like, every you know, word like, is a
0: cartoon. Like- yeah, but sometimes there's, like, but, Ezra, sometimes there's a lone man who stands up, <laughs> you know, with a gun. Yeah. He does what's right and he does what needs to be done that none of these other pussies will admit has to happen.
1: Yeah, well, then they call him a terrorist for spraying up a nice facility. What do you want? Like,
0: yeah, I'm just, I'm just, sorry, I'm just try- unfair. Like, I'm like, I'm just trying to like, I'm just trying to get like the FBI's attention. So hopefully they're <laughs> listening to this. All right. So um, housing S- question.
1: So the housing question.
0: So we turned to this because it, you know, when we first started talking about this, it seemed like one of the more like pressing social questions that was happening before like, nuclear warfare was back on the <laughs> table. You know? Yeah, you know, we're always up with the hot-button issues. Yeah. Um, but it's it still is an important issue because, you know, all this feeds in. Like, the United States, the Fed right now is, they say they're going to do it. They're planning, and I don't see how they can't. You know, they're planning on cooling things off to fight inflation. They might have to even do another Volcker shock and jack things up to fucking 20% or something crazy like that. And... So you basically have this massively inflationary economy, quantitative tightening coming up, uh supply chain's fucked up and material resources are shorter. Uh I'll throw on top of that like an energy shock and a potential world war, which, you know, probably isn't gonna happen, but it's you know, if it, it's uh it's maybe a single digit possibility, whereas yesterday it was a you know, it's a 000. not
1: It's a it's like um a- Not only is it like a non-zero chance, it's just that, like, you can kind of imagine the mechanism for unfolding. Whereas before, Mm -hmm. there was no real plausible mechanism outside of a Tom Clancy novel with a rogue non-state actor who wants to sow chaos, right? Like, it was very hard to imagine, you know, something as plausible of, okay, you know, the Eastern European states and NATO start putting pressure on Germany, and, you know, Germany starts getting serious, and, you know, like an actual path where actors would follow their incentives and, and have it unfold in, in nuclear war. Like it's just a p- much more plausible thing now, even though uh, it's right. still, it's still, it's probably not that much farther of a non-zero possibility. It's just, you know, it's just that when you can imagine the mechanism, it, it becomes a lot scarier.
0: Yes. It is interconnected, you know, downstream of all these things and that the housing problem at least in the in a contemporary sense although um looking back at this piece which was written you know in you know high 19th century capitalism you know he was writing from england which you know is ground zero for all for all of that shit um looking at kind of classic old school liberalism to understand contemporary neoliberalism you see a lot of what is just baked into the model um but there is also the whole thing is also exacerbated by, um, you know, massive asset price appreciation that has taken place over recent decades and accelerated uh, to an even more absurd degree in the last year, uh, mostly due to QE, along with material shortages and a bunch of people entering the market at the same time, which has resulted in double digit uh, price appreciation in housing nationally, which is insane. And unsustainable. Right. Like, if it, if it yeah. continues at this rate, it would literally double in 10 years.
1: Yeah. If any, if any of your loved ones have, like, housing assets, quote, unquote, now's a good time to lose them. Um, you know, like, cash in. Because that shit's that's going bye-bye. Like, And I, I've talked to a number of people who have assets and a number of people who are, like, pay attention to the markets. And I don't know. People that are really wrapped up in housing right now are in essentially a different world than anyone that has to like, like rent their housing. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Like it's, it's like a different planet, more or less like mentally. And, um, the readjustment is coming. Um, I think we've, we've talked about that before and how, so yeah, something like the Volcker shock is a good point of comparison for what is likely going to be necessary if this is provoked, like intentionally by the fed. And, you know, it's one of those things that the fed does as damage control that will inevitably provoke some outrage because look, you know, it's causing, it's causing this to burst. I mean, either they try to do it and it doesn't work or, or they try to do it and it does work. And it, and they get like, they get shit for it. Essentially. Like, there's no
0: way there's no way they're gonna look good (laughs) well i mean volker didn't look good like he was hated and everyone thought he was a fucking idiot uh until afterwards when it was retrospectively, it's like oh he actually did tame inflation so um but you know these things anything that they do is not without winners and losers so it's gonna piss a lot of people off it seems like the the thread what they're trying to the needle they're trying to thread now is how do we keep the economy running uh by shoveling money basically into the richest institutions how do we how do we have this massive asset price appreciation without completely liquidating the middle class political base that we need to secure political support for all this shit
1: (laughs) right right and the answer is you can't like right that's the real answer but you got to be a black-pilled communist to accept that one
0: housing should we should i try and read the poll quotes that i basically pulled from this um or should we step back and just try and talk about this set section two more generally, or what do you think?
1: Um, we get, I mean, we could just start with the, start with the, with the, the initial things that he says about like, why this pivot towards like, you know, bourgeois trying to solve the housing question ends up coming about is actually a reaction to like pandemics. Um, yeah. Once they know.
0: realized all the diseases could blow their way from the slums, you know, or they, or the men could bring it home after seeing their mistresses there. Like, then, then they're like, "Oh shit, we gotta do something about this."
1: <laughs> yeah, and something. Yeah, sometimes I wonder how. I mean, something that was so cutting then. I wonder if Engels is among some one of the only people that can kind of imagine where this is going. That's you know writing at the time, and even then, there's a way in which he's even this kind of description is um, almost not cynical enough for the world we live in um, where in, you know, like in, in a communist country, like the conditions of living got so bad to produce more plagues, like, um, you know, which is like pretty, pretty much, pretty much like the way that the industrial working class um, produced like plagues in England as well. Um, like during the time, I mean, pretty much during the time that Engels is writing and in a way they never, like they, they do end up solving that question in, in like a public health kind of sense, but not for a long time. And also those gains seem to be kind of slipping. Um, I don't know. I was just thinking about this in, in terms of, uh, The way that, you know, coronavirus started um, and some of the stuff that Schwang says in their piece, social division, um,
0: comparing it to earlier outbreaks in Britain. There's things that Engels saw coming and there's things he very much didn't, um, you know, because he basically and there was parts of this text later on where he kind of zooms in on where he's discussing his, his theory or his opinions on the the. Precise class nature of the Prussian state, uh, where he, like the he knows the bourgeoisie that he knows, but capitalism is a global system now, and so there are a variety of national contexts that it becomes inserted into, that produce differing outcomes. So there has been shown that there are ways to solve, quote unquote, housing question within the system, uh, but they require maybe a particular balance of class and political and historical forces to do it um whereas the bourgeoisie when left to their own devices um yes they will basically you will get these liberal outcomes uh, and especially you know you see that in the planet of slums you know that like davis describes in his book where the rents like the rent-seeking behaviors flow so far downstream that you have people like renting out, like, favelas or, like, hovels, literal hovels within hovels, you know, and everybody's renting from somebody else in, like, this insane, like, literal pyramid scheme. And even there, too, you can see how... Because there's a later part, uh, the housing question here, where he talks about differing schemes where, you know, if we just, like, deeded the proletarians, the land that they live on, then they would suddenly have, like, a basis from which to develop wealth and accumulate. They literally... Attempted like program charter programs like this like in the favelas in the third world and it didn't fucking work, you know, like it, it's 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 um yeah, we have data on these like things the, the now. The proletariat but... is by definition propertyless, and like anything that they get will eventually be, you know, taken from them to the extent that it can it is politically permissible to do so.
1: Yeah, and it's not a matter of conjecture. Like it's it's just a matter of historical record, and. It was always the most plausible thing that was going to happen. But now there's just, you know, a lot
0: of historical evidence to (laughs) bolster that case. Yeah, he basically – so in this – in the beginning of this, he is taking apart a piece by a guy named Dr. Emil Sachs called The Housing Condition of the Working Class and Their Reform. And one of the first things he criticizes them for is basically, you know – Harboring this idea that properly as proletarians can be like raised to the level of property classes without them ceasing to be wage laborers, you know, and that, you know, this is this is basically what he uses. He defines us as bourgeois socialism. Right. And we hear this all the time with a, pretty much any reformist effort. This idea that, you know, if we just had this program or that program or, you know, yes, in my backyard or whatever, that, you know, the people who are for have nothing the most valuable asset they have is their labor power and they have to sell it every day in order to get by. Uh, If you don't change that state of affairs, in the short or long run, you're going to produce similar outcomes. He then kind of moves on to discuss like, you know, the housing shortage. Dr. Sachs, again, as a lib, fails to appreciate that this is the result of the social order itself. A lot of this is basically just about how all this stuff is like downstream of prudonism and it's not really tethered from a grounded like analysis of political economy, which, you know, in this case, he and Marx just happen to have. It's just this idea where it's like, you know, like, man, I, like it's the inverse of what you see on like landlord TikTok where the landlord TikTokers are like, yeah, you just got to like, you got to buy it. Look, I bought a house and then I, I rented the house. I fixed up a little bit and then I rented the house and I did that with I took out lines of credit and got three more houses. It's, it's all about revenue streams. It's not about the base loans. Like it's it, if I just have a house, then once I pay for the house, then I just get infinite money after that, you know. <laughs> Whereas you know he basically zooms in and is like, okay, let's look at the actual uh, value relationships that go into this, uh, which is more in line with um, landlord defense Facebook posts, where they're like, well, look, you have X amount of cost that goes into a house. Uh, you know, you got you got repairs, you got taxes, you got you know, this, that, and that. There's actual labor going into this, uh, which is true. Uh, you know, they're still parasites.
1: Sounds like somebody spends a lot of time on a uh, landlord social media.
0: I, I, I actually haven't, but I have seen like compilations of stuff. Um, or, you know, sometimes I've seen people like repost like screen caps from, you know, like different Facebook groups and stuff. So I mean, it, get some more egregious examples. I'm sure
1: it is kind of unusual to get like just distilled class ideology, like in such a self-conscious way. You know what mm-hmm. I mean?
0: Like just
1: a bunch of landlords coming forward and saying as a landlord, here are my class interests. Like,
0: yeah here's how it ideologically affects my point of view it's interesting like the distinction because like the yeah the facebook stuff is basically these people like all in groups like you know juicing each other up you know like yeah these fucking these ingrates like we give them housing and they don't even appreciate it the tiktok stuff is is much more just grifting where it's like selling people this fantasy that like yeah it's just that easy like you just need it's about revenue streams and you know you can just you know overextend yourself on credit and then like you know just uh, pick the pockets of the other people you work with, and then eventually you won't have to work. It's great. Like It's, it's so stupid. Why doesn't everybody do this?
1: Yeah, the classic petty bourgeois maximizer, U- universal maximizer. Everyone could win this zero-sum game.
0: A lot of what Ingalls does here, he points out how the bourgeois socialists, what they have amounts to an appeal to moralism. And, of course, that always proves inadequate to address material interests because of the way that politics inherently works. Oh, should, I, should I just start, like, reading quotes? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, okay, so it's I'm trying to pull, like, what is most important here, because some of this is just him, like, ripping into this sax guy. And a lot of it is, you know, pretty, like, basic arguments about, you know, um, you know, bourgeois socialists get this idea in their head that, you know, like, workers, like, oh, they just, they, they blow their money on, like, I, I the quote here is specifically waste on on spirits and tobacco. Um, you know, I guess now the modern meme is like avocado toast or maybe they moved on to something else. Ignoring how like in- like income actually works overall. Let's see. Talk about the own, and own, do- his own dwellings, the favela things. Um, OK, so there's a part where Dr. Sacks wax- waxes rhapsodic about the power of land ownership and seems to believe that land ownership is the solution to the condition of being a pro- proletariat. Ingalls retorts, Dr. Sachs seems to assume that man is essentially a peasant. Otherwise, he would now describe to the workers of our big cities longing for property and land, a longing which no one else has discovered. For our workers in the big city, freedom of movement is the first condition of their existence and land ownership can only be a hindrance to them. Give them their own houses, chain them once again to the soil and you break their power of resistance to the wage cutting of the factory owners. The individual worker might be able to sell his house on occasion, but during a big strike or general industrial crisis, all the houses belonging to the effective workers would have to come onto the market for sale and would therefore find no purchasers, or be sold far off below their cost price. And even if they all found purchasers, the great solution of the housing question of Doctor Sanks would have come to nothing, and we'd have to start from the beginning again. I think this is an interesting example. I think that the example of well, we know just from history that when all workers go on strike, that they don't their houses don't all have to immediately go for sale. Um, there's like there's ways around not p- miss, missing a few mortgage payments or whatever, but he is right that the being geographically tied to a piece of property that you have to live on is a pretty big uh, piece of leverage that you're giving to an employer as opposed to you know having some de- higher degree of mobility that would allow you to you know vote with your feet but that contains its own set of problems like part of the problem with this sort of uh, underdevelopment of American like trade unionism was the fact that People would, uh, you know, LOL, just move, bro, when something when things got shitty in a place.
1: Yeah, but when Dr. Sachs seems to assume that man is essentially a peasant and, and you know, uh, has some sort of longing for land, Engels elsewhere knows that appealing to this longing for land is what makes the American class compromise so lethal and what makes the settler project and specifically the available of just Gobs and gobs and just an enormous amount of land. The thing that makes the American Settler Project able to stave off like a, a classical sort of working class response politically. When are his comments on the United States' class compromise situation?
0: Hmm, that's a good question. I know he's talked about it in places, but I don't know I don't know where exactly. It's, they never had like a dedicated piece because it didn't seem to be like a major focus of their interest, like they were very they were they were very eurocentric there's no way around it and they just kind of i think they were most interested in the places where class struggle seemed the most promising you know so you would look to you'd be studying you know excessively like england france germany uh, at the time
1: because that basic land thing is why angles seems to understand america better than marx
0: for the most part Uh, Well, here's just something. Okay, In any case, Dr. Sachs has solved the question raised in the beginning. The worker, quote, becomes a capitalist by acquiring his own little house. Then he kind of responds, capital is the command of the unpaid labor, over the unpaid labor of others. The house of the worker can only become capital. Therefore, if he rents it to a third person and appropriates a part of the labor product of this third person in the form of rent.
1: I mean, that by itself is really, it's a good um, way of understanding how, even if you own a home, you're not necessarily, like, literally petty bourgeois in the, the orthodox, excuse me, classical Marxist sense of the term, right? Like, right. Because y- you own property, but it's not like a an industrial asset or something that is, you know, profit making.
0: Okay, so um, here's here's a bit of a longer one. So, okay. However, the capitalist character of our worker is still another side. Let us assume that in a given industrial area has become the rule that each worker owns his own little house in this case the working class of that area lives rent free expenses for rent no longer enter into the value of its labor power every reduction in the cost every reduction in the cost of production of labor power that is to say every permanent price reduction in the workers necessities of life is equivalent quote on the basis of the iron laws of political economy quote to a reduction in the value of labor power and will therefore finally result in a corresponding fall in wages uh, wages falling the average corresponding average corresponding to the sum saved on rent that is the worker would pay rent for his own house uh, but not as formally in the money to the house owner but an unpaid labor to the factory owner for whom he works uh, in this way the savings of the worker invested in his little house would certainly become capital to some extent but not capital for him but for the capitalist uh, employing him so what this also kind of gets at is how there are differing sections within the capitalist class who draw income from like different sources I mean, with the socialization at, like, high finance levels, this has been blended somewhat. But at least in principle, there's, like, there's like the renter section of capitalists and there's sections of, like, industrial capital. But even within the system, you know, based on this example, at the end, like, it does fall to industrial capital because they're kind of at the engine of all of the economic development of the system as a whole.
1: Right. And workers being able to afford their own housing – Their own housing. It's like, okay, good. So we don't really have to pay as much. You don't have to worry about that. You don't have to pay for that. Oh, great. Oh, that's so good to hear. Like, so you won't mind if we, you know, that's not like historically, like necessarily how it goes, but if labor conditions are anything like they've been, you know, let's say from like six months ago, you know, going back 50 years, then yeah that's absolutely what would happen
0: well i mean and usually the condi- the conditions that produce like a homeowning working class is usually that they have some kind of leverage in the form of unions on the employers so in those in that case you give them a house it can turn into you know a form property development for them or in terms of like wealth development for them or, or a store of wealth um, that does actually appreciate and doesn't eat into their wages which is what made it such a great way to like sort of re reincorporated into the into this uh competitive logic of you know each person is like a little proprietarian or whatever
1: yeah because while you know we might be able to say formally speaking that if you're not monetizing your mcmansion you know it's not petty bourgeois it clearly does create a small proprietarian like outlook and like like the sort of class attitude that has an impact on you know people's like politics that certainly does limit one's horizons.
0: Eventually this guy introduces the idea of uh, basically like the cottage system that had been like developed in some places where you know like a working class family had their own little house, own little garden. Let's see. His counter to all of this is you know eventually these industrial centers get created and they pull in people looking for work and they literally just can't build fast enough to make up for the influx of population. And so you get like, ergo, you get this housing crisis um, and the the population becomes so dense that it's much harder to like build enough for everybody. Um, And so he basically points out, you know, you can't 100% build out in such a way because eventually it becomes, you know, unrealistic for people to be able to like get from where they are to where, I mean, cars have solved this problem somewhat, at least in the United States, but let's see. On his own admission, therefore, the bourgeois solution to the housing question has come to grief. It's come to grief owing to the antithesis of town and country. Uh, and with this, we have arrived at the kernel of the problem. The housing question can only be solved when society has sufficiently transformed for a start to be made towards abolishing the antithesis between town and country, which is brought to an extreme point by present-day capitalist society. Far from being able to abolish this antithesis, capitalist society on the contrary is compelled to intensify it day by day. What's interesting about this is that Modern, in a modern context, it seems as though, like, for the sake of survival, some level of re-urbanization is necessary in order to minimize impacts on the rest of, you know, the broader environment and ecology as a whole. It turns out that having um, abolishing the division of town and country uh, is requires a tremendous amount of energy to facilitate that. And, like, it's actually very bad for the environment because you're also taking away a lot of, you know, wild space, which is decimated um, just overall, like, biomass populations of wild animals.
1: Are, are we conflating, like, American suburbanization? Are, are you conflating American suburbanization with the abolition of town and country? Because, like, I think we could look at American suburbia and look at, like, a nightmare version of whatever the abolition of town and country is, where, like, you have a, a way of life that's as alienating as the city, but it's, a, a, like, as wasteful. As, you know, living outside of a city or something. It's kind of the worst of both worlds. Whereas, like, the vision of abolition of town and country, in the pure Marxist ways, of course, will have all the good stuff from being in a city. But, you know, not like the bad stuff. Um, which obviously sounds naive. Um, but, I don't know. There are, like, planned scale communities or something. That if you, you you space them out a, along public rail or something, um, it would be a lot more sustainable than the kind of urban sprawl that you get outside of a lot of major
0: cities right now. Well, I mean, I guess from what I've heard, um, just having higher population density is more resource efficient. Um, so it basically cut down on like resource and energy consumption in a way that would be inevitable if you spread the entire population you know, over the surface, I mean, over the surface of the country in a much wider distributed way. I mean, it would have to, it would literally have to be more spatially dense than a, the sort of maybe I've heard like South Korea kind of described this way in terms of the way that like things are um, spaced out, but I don't know. I, th- I, it seems like, I mean, I guess like there's an abolition of like town and country, like in a political sense where, you know, you don't have like a peasants or you don't have like, um, you know, you don't, like, it, it's all basically integrated into, like, one, like, giant network. But don't we have to, like, rewild, like, half the planet or some shit like that or make, like, massive wildlife corridors? Like, there would have to be pretty controlled development. Uh, I don't know. I mean, that's just, that's the uh, ecology shit that I have off the top of my head on this. I don't know.
1: I, I just think it matters, like, what
0: numbers we're working
1: with and, you know, how much is, uh you know, what's what is the population density of one of these, like, if you're doing abolition of town and country, one of the like discrete units, because you could like, um, you know, the way it was described about like how they do this kind of thing in South Korea, like there's just a, uh, you're kind of in the middle of farmland. There's this big skyscraper that has all this shit in it. Like, um, you know, that, that seems like one of the technical solutions that I've heard that kind of combines the best of both worlds. You don't need to spread out that much besides like the power grid in that sense. And it's, that's like space, it's spatially efficient in a way that like, again, urban sprawl outside of Phoenix or LA eat from a population density standpoint from an environmentally, you know, from an environmentally minded standpoint, like American cities are not the paradigmatic, you know, resource efficient cities, like not, not by a long shot. But I, but I do get what you mean, like in terms of population density and resource efficiency. It is because capitalism has a way of making, you know, the marginal costs of people's lives like almost fucking nothing in the same way that grinding down whatever like, you know, whatever like extra pressure is relieved from workers on their wages will get eaten up by
0: surplus value. This guy goes on, like, Harris-Sax goes on about how it's in, the, it's, in the, it's in the capitalist interest to supply, you know, housing for workers. And it inadvertently ends up, like, praising what are essentially company towns. And this is what Ingalls points out. Like, it's like, yeah, they, I mean, they will provide housing for workers, but, like, it's basically just a scheme to, like, in the end, pretty much not pay them, like, have slaves, you know. Ingalls notes some goalposts moving where this guy starts out basically saying workers should own their own house. Um, but it can only be done in the country. And then also this ownership ends up being revocable by agreement. You know what I mean? So it's like you you basically just yeah, reinvent – you've just done renting with extra steps. Um,
1: yeah, but like th- the kind of fucked up thing is that renting with extra steps is, again, where Angles elsewhere calls how the U.S. is going to defeat its coming workers' movement and sees the writing on the wall elsewhere. It must be a later Engels tax because here – he thinks it's kind of ridiculous, right? Like this, and well, I mean, it is ridiculous that this is supposed to be coming from a socialist reformer, and there is like an element of this thinking that comes up in the New Deal and in like Keynesian adapt adaptations of uh, like chartalism to like you know non-war contexts <laughs> um, when they're you know formalizing like a class compromise after world war 2 there is like a fair amount of thinking that goes along this way and even i don't know even like uh like henry ford like you're saying with the company like uh how angles relates to company towns you know for the way henry ford looks at like you know investment in you know workers infrastructure there's a lot of convergence there this ends up not being like as stupid as angles thinks but for the nightmare reason that this was going to be the This was some form of this was going to end up being like the the radical, like not the radical option, but like the I don't know, like it was going to very much be the way that the working class reconstructs along national lines. Right. This is what we end up getting. This is what we end up getting is bourgeois socialism.
0: Yeah, because like what Ingalls is talking about here is he's, he's doing what they always do, which is like kind of create abstract away a bunch of things like, you know, for instance, the influence of the working class on the system. And just talk about like the pure deal that they've been getting, you know, in the most you know wild west free market capitalism that you had in that p- time period, and he's basically modeling out. Okay, we take this guy's solutions, and then we insert them into this context, and this is how it plays out. And this is in literally in a lot of cases, this is how it's already played out. There's another good thing that it, they get into that I think is a certain example of something um, like the building societies, which he describes as partly philanthropic and partly speculative which has shown a net profit four to six percent more um it's necessary for hair sacks to provide us with the um to prove to us so the building societies are basically they're these groups where basically people get together and like rate they find some piece of land for some worker and get together and like build houses for them and there's a scheme basically with how the money is moved around in such a way that it's profitable for everybody concerned and like the Person who's honestly usually kind of middle class or in like the labor aristocracy, they get to have a house and everybody gets to like pat themselves on the back and feel good about it. That's that's kind of the broad description. I, that, that's kind of what these were. I feel like these are like a good example for the kind of limited solutions that you'll sometimes get. I know I've been seeing like you know, like there's basically a housing crisis where I live now, and I've been seeing like a lot of stories in the paper of like. Well, here's this program. Like, look, somebody got a place to live. But it's like, yeah, that was like 100 people. Like, <laughs> And the person in your story you're talking about said they were homeless for like two years before this worked out for them. So they it's, they, put forward, they it's like they create these things so that they can like write an article in the newspaper and say, look, we're fixing it. So as far as these London building societies are concerned, brilliant successes, hair sacks, so loudly proclaims. They have, according to his own figures, and every sort of dwelling speculation is included, Provide dwellings for a total of 2,132 families and 706 single men uh, for less than 15,000 persons. Uh, and it is presumed seriously to present in Germany this sort of childishness as a great success, although in the east end of London alone, half a million workers live under the most miserable housing conditions. Uh, the whole of these philanthropic efforts are in fact so miserably futile that the English parliamentary reports dealing with the situation of the workers never even bother to mention them. So going skip ahead here. He pulls he pulls in some different like uh, things from like Bonaparte's France. Let's see different like forms of state assistance, um, like different like uh, bachelors clubs and shit like that. Okay, so what then exactly do all these examples uh, prove? Simply so that the building of workers' dwellings is profitable from the capitalist point of view, even when all the laws of hygiene are not trodden underfoot. But what has never been de- that? But that has never been denied. Uh, we all knew that long ago. Any investment of capital which satisfies an existing need is profitable if conducted rationally. The question, however, is precisely why the housing shortage continues to exist all the same, why the capitalists all the same do not provide sufficient healthy dwellings for the workers. And here, Herr Sachs is again nothing but extortions to make to the capitalists and fails to provide us with an answer. The real answer to this question has already been given above. Uh, capital does not the desire to abolish the housing shortage even if it could uh, this has now has been completely established. There remain, therefore, only two other expedients, uh, self-help on the part of the workers and state assistance. These building societies are not worker societies, nor is it their main aim to provide workers with their own houses. On the contrary, we shall see that this happens only exceptionally. The building societies are essentially of a speculative nature, the, the smaller ones, which were the original societies, not less so than their bigger imitators. In a public house, usually at the instigation of the proprietor in whose rooms the weekly meetings then take place, a number of regular customers and their friends, small shopkeepers, clerks, commercial travelers, master artisans, and other petty bourgeois, uh, with here and there perhaps an engineer or some other worker belonging to the aristocracy of his class, found a building society. The immediate occasion is usually that the proprietor has discovered a comparatively cheap plot of land in the neighborhood or somewhere else. Most of the members are not bound by their occupation to any particular district. Even many of the small shopkeepers and artisans only have business premises in the town and not any dwelling Whoever is in position to do so prefers to live in the suburbs rather than in the center of the smoky town. The building plot is purchased as many cottages as possible erected on it. The credit of the better-off members makes this purchase possible. The weekly contributions, together with a few small loans, cover the weekly cost of building. Those members who aim at getting a house of their own receive cottages by lot as they are completed, and the appropriate extra rent serves for the amortization of the purchase price. The remaining cottages are then either let or sold. The building society, however, assuming that it does good business, accumulates larger or smaller sum, which remains the property of the members, provided that they keep up their contributions, which, from time to time, or when the society is dissolved, is distributed amongst them. This is the life history of 9 out of the 10 of the English building societies. The others are bigger societies, sometimes formed under political or philanthropic pretexts, pretexts. but their chief aim is to always provide the savings of the petty bourgeoisie, with a more profitable mortgage investment at a good rate of interest, with the prospect of dividends as a result of the speculation in real estate. Um, The sort of clients these societies speculate on can be seen from the prospects of the largest, if not the largest, of them. The Burbeck Building Society, uh, 29 and 30, Southampton's building's uh, chancery lane, London, whose gross receipts since the existence total, uh, 10,500,000 sterling, which has over £416,000 in the bank or invested in state securities, which at present has uh, 20, 21,441 members and depositors. Uh, yeah, so that's basically the rundown of what these things are. And he notes like few workers, of course, can afford to be part of any of this. So yeah, like that's like basically. It's basically one of those things that, like, they, in addition to just making a lot of money for the people involved, they can sort of point to and be like, "See, the system works," or "See, people are doing the right thing."
1: But apparently, the uh, the Bonapartists, in spite of the state assistance granted to them, can swindle their clients far far more effectively than the building societies do. So this is inspired by the Bonapartists, but the, but they can't do it. You know, people can't do it as well as the Bonapartists can.
0: Uh, going into the subject of state aid. Basically, you know, you have you have different forms of state aid. Like uh, but the problem is, Engels basically points out that nobody who's actually like in a position to do anything has any economic incentive to do so. It's the classical situation of municipal politics, which in the United States this problem has been exacerbated once things were deindustrialized. You know, the only interest group really left is real estate, and they basically end up having you know pretty much singular. Like, sectional capital power over the city politically.
1: (laughs) Unless there's a big company in town. Like, um, unless you have, you know, unless you're uh, San Francisco or a Redmond, Washington.
0: According to Harris-Sax, state power must make use of all the positive means at its disposal to to remedy the existing housing shortage to the most comprehensive extent. And English goes, that is to say it must build barracks, uh, truly model buildings for its subordinate officials and servants and grant loans to municipalities, societies, and also to private persons with a view to improving the housing conditions of the working class, as is done in England under the Public Works Loan Act and as Louis Bonaparte has done in Paris and um, Mulhausen. But the Public Works Loan Act only exists on paper, the government places at the disposal of the commissioners a maximum sum of 50,000 pounds sterling, i.e. sufficient to build at most 400 cottages. That is to say, in forty years, a total of sixteen hundred cottages or dwellings for at most eighty thousand purpose persons—a drop in the ocean. Uh, even if we assume that after twenty years, the funds at the disposal of the commissioners were to double as a result of repayments, um, yeah, you, you still wouldn't have that many people, basically. Um, and again, yeah, that's again that's uh, very typical. <laughs> like, we, like you literally see that now. Uh, like the the housing relief we've seen locally is basically. They get some money from the federal government and give it to people sometimes to help with their rent-back payments when there's the money. Once the money runs out, the program shuts down until there's some more money. It's perfectly clear that the existing state is neither able or willing to do anything to remedy the housing difficulty. The state is nothing but the organized collective power of the possessing classes, the landowners, and the capitalists, as against the exploited classes, the peasants, and the workers. What the individual capitalists uh, do not want, their state also does not want. If, therefore, the individual capitalists deplore the housing shortage but can hardly be persuaded to even superficially palliate its most terrifying consequences, the collective capitalists' state will not do much more. Let's see. There's some stuff where he gets into the precise class nature of the German state at the time. There's some weird shit that he says about
1: stock exchange Jews. Uh, yeah, yes. That's, that's you know, pretty yeah. base.
0: Um, so I want to skip to, like, part three here. Um. Okay, I'm going to skip down. So there's, you know, there's more like... So in the in part three of this whole thing, there's like some prudence in Lasallian axe grinding. But it kind of gets... He gets he kind of breaks down that um, this other guy, because Mal, Maulbarger basically writes him back and is like, you're being mean. And also, I don't... It's not like you said it was. Okay, so and he just breaks it down here. So it he goes, What did I reply to this Prudonis plan? Uh, firstly, that the transfer of ground rent to the state is identical with the abolition of individual property and land. Secondly, the gradual redemption of the rented dwelling and the transfer of property in the dwelling to the tenants does not at all affect the capitalist mode of production. Thirdly, that with the present development of large-scale industry in towns, this proposal is as absurd as it is reactionary, that the reintroduction of ownership of his dwelling by each individual would be a step backward. Fourthly, that the compulsory reduction of the rate of interest on capital would by no means attack the capitalist mode of production, and that, on the contrary, as the usury laws prove, the idea is as old as it is impossible. Uh, fifthly, the abolition of interest on capital by no means in- abolishes the payment of rent for houses. Uh, Molberger has now admitted points two and four. To the other points, he makes no reply whatever. Nonetheless, these are just the points around which the whole debate is center, centered. Mulberger's answer, however, is not a refutation. it carefully avoids dealing with all the economic points, uh, which are, are, of course, the decisive ones. It is a personal complaint, nothing more, which, which summarizes this uh, pretty well. And, and the specific tiff he's having, the disagreement that he's having with this guy and the fact that he sort of changes his opinions uh, in his latest response because uh, he essentially agrees uh, with some of what he's saying and then, you know, doesn't want to admit it. I'm not owned. I'm not owned. Okay. So I, I, I kind of sped through this section a little more because a lot of it is recapitulating stuff uh, that was discussed in the first section. But it is, it is interesting to see the parallels of, you know, you know what happens basically when the bourgeoisie left to their own devices in two different you know, like historical contexts. Uh, it ends up looking the same. It's interesting now because there there are many different yeah historical contexts and examples for how capitalism has managed this particular aspect. You know, depending on different conditions, and how the introduction of some measure of working class agency was able to tip things, such that some of the, you know, shittier solutions that, again, because like these ideas were attractive, you know, the the Prudhonist and Lassalian and this, you know, doctor guy's ideas were attractive to working class people at the time because they seemed to provide an actual solution. Uh, and to a certain extent, within capitalism, they can, but it's it's a slippery position you're in that can't really last. We've also talked about like certain like different like state capitalists situations where, yeah, like slums and misery. I mean, yeah, just imagine
1: looking at out at Manchester and being like, "Yeah, this is going to get a whole lot worse,"
0: and kind of seeing the world unfold from there. Because you know, London, England, you're coming out of a system of hard feudalism where a lot of the land in London was literally owned by aristocrats who were, you know, leasing it out on extensive terms in certain like more rapidly developmentalist like state capitalist societies. They have been able to prioritize the interests of employers in terms of keeping wage labor cheap in the form of reducing housing expenses. But, you know, those people in those societies, like maybe the amenities are nicer and that it, you know, like, Certain places have been able to avoid having like full on slums, um, but they are still wage workers in a capitalist society, having to work, you know, long hours at, at a job that is, uh, you know, uh, alienating and demeaning. So, I mean, it's it's better that they have a nice like home to go to, but it doesn't really solve like the social question,
1: right? Even in in the in the you know some of the biggest implementations of bourgeois socialist hopes. Like, that, hey, I mean, Engels is partially wrong, that, like, you know, won't, can't you, like, buy people off with this? Like, yes, you can. You can make them think that they're capitalists, even if they're really not. Like, you know, even even in that socialism, even in that, like, um, kind of nightmare implementation of bourgeois socialism, like, that can't last either.
0: Right. And, like, I think... I think right now, if memory serves, like Romania has like the highest rate of homeownership in the world, like 90-something percent. Um, I think Cuba's pretty close behind, along with Singapore. Um, All right. But, you know, those places are hardly utopias.
1: Oh, come on. What's wrong with Singapore? Just don't get caught with weed.
0: <sighs> yeah, or, or like spitting gum out. But Honestly, you shouldn't be spitting gum out, man. That's gross. Put that in, put that in a wrapper. Come on, man. I don't support being people being like caned for it. Yeah, maybe. I mean, maybe we could. I mean, I'm sure the people who get caned, they only they don't yeah. can everybody who spits out gum, but they do it to like one. They do it to like one guy to set an example.
1: Come on, We're, we've alienated every country that could be sending us money. I mean, come on, we could we could be gray zone, you know? Like we could have we could have that money. We could be permanently in people's heads all the time, like. We didn't play this game right.
0: Okay, if, honestly though, okay, if you had to pick one country for us to be get foreign money from to defend, which would it, which one would it be?
1: I don't know. Let's go with um, let's go with Ireland. Yeah.
0: So. Yeah, that's a that's a good one. Mm-hmm. They're a fire economy too, so they got like yeah, they got they got they're they're caked up right now. Yeah, that's a good one. Shit. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean like come on. Like pick up the phone. Especially when when it comes time for, you know, the Irish reunica- reunification of 2024, you're going you're going to need left podcasts on your side. You know, that's going to be the deciding mm. vote.
0: I guess I I'm going to say Chile. Okay. I respect that. I'll be right I'll be right or die for Chile. They seem like cool people down there. Yeah. Respect.
1: All right, Ireland, Chile, yeah. you know, pick up the phone. We're we're here.
0: Yeah, we're, yeah, we're ready. We're, whenever you're ready to be a player on the internet, I, I mean, problem is they you know, like, especially with Ireland, we'll do it for free. You know, like that's.
1: You know, I would have before. I'm not so sure now. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Maybe, maybe, uh, you know, the UK. It deserves another chance. You know, like
0: maybe, uh, yeah you can't. Even, you could can barely spit those <laughs> <time>. <laughs> yeah
1: yeah it's true I, I just had to fucking like bite into some soap afterward
0: that's it for this time uh, if you want to get hold of us you can email us at swampsidechats at gmail.com if you want to support the show uh, hit up our Patreon yeah so until next time keep your boots clean your feet out of the swamp and your head in the revolutionary clouds of tomorrow